listening to Gleanings, the monthly newsletter from Strategies at Work, podcast edition, February 1st, 2020. Today's teaching is titled, The First Day of the New Testament Church from Acts 2. Visit strategieswork.com to subscribe to the email version of Gleanings for additional teachings and more information. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, The First Day of the New Testament Church. This morning we want to talk out of Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. And the title is, The First Day of the New Testament The events of Acts chapter 2 record the beginning of the New Testament Ecclesia. In this era, God's people would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who would empower them to obey God. The Old Testament ecclesia, namely Israel, was not divinely empowered beyond common grace. Their failure to obey the Mosaic law revealed the impotency of human human behavior and humanity, and to be able to meet God's standard of righteousness was not possible. Therefore, one of the main lessons of the Old Testament was that man cannot self-save from the penalty of sin and death. To be saved, mankind must be divinely empowered and transformed. The destiny of Jesus in this life was to provide the basis for salvation. And the legacy of Jesus is to build an ecclesia of saved and empowered people. His work began on the day of Pentecost. The events recorded in Acts chapter 2 mark the beginning of Jesus' ecclesia and set the context for the remainder of the book of Acts and the meta narrative. So reading out of uh, Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 36 uh, because that really is a a key to understanding the following verses. Verse 36 says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, Peter is talking to these Jews on that day of Pentecost that were gathered in Jerusalem for one of the annual three annual uh, pilgrimage festivals. And these Jews were biblically literate. They knew well the scripture and they were convicted of the truth of scripture and the need to live by scripture. So they were some of the most committed people you would find. And these are the people that crucified Jesus because they did not understand who he was. So Paul had gone through a lengthy discussion in the prior verses, laying out how the Old Testament predicted who Christ would be by events that would surround him. For example, they predicted his resurrection, his ascension, and the reality that there would be an empowerment by the Holy Spirit in a new age to make up for the deficiency that humanity could never make up for themselves. So this critical verse, verse 36, is about about building on on a certainty. Know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord in Christ. So in in the language of philosophy, this would be an axiomatic principle. This would be an archaic, a starting point. This would be something that you can absolutely count on. This is true. It is a fact. And everything that comes from this fact is built on a solid foundation. So the certainty here is who Jesus was, was Lord and Christ. And so that's that's the context now for which he's going to launch into the remainder of the chapter. So reading on Acts 2, verses 37 
through 47. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. That means they were convicted and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. The word corrupt is, literally means crooked generation. So those who accepted the message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many signs and wonders were being performed through the apostles. Now, all the believers were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as they had need. Each day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple to, and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with jo joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. <clears throat> Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now this is a, this is a powerful text. This is a very challenging text. So as I said, you've got to contextualize this clearly and understand that verse 36 is absolutely critical. Peter concluded his explanation of the events of the day of Pentecost with a certain statement that Jesus was both Lord and Christ. This meant that Jesus was the unique person of history, the only theanthropic person ever, fully God, fully man, apart from sin. To the first century Jews, this was a startling conclusion, but undeniable as it was grounded in scripture. Scripture was their authoritative source of truth and unlike today. In verse 37, these devout Jews from every ethnic group were convicted in their hearts and responded to the apostles, brothers, what should we do? They were pierced in the heart. Their heart is used metaphorically to represent the core of their being, which included their mind, will, and emotions. The conviction of their heart drove them to action but they didn't know what to do, so they asked. In the Jewish tradition, there was a great emphasis on human obedience. They prided themselves on being God's people who obeyed God's law. But now there is a complicating factor. The Jews were responsible for the murder, the execution of Jesus, whom they now know to be Lord in Christ. Therefore, they asked, what should we do? Verse 38, 39, Peter replied, Repent, that's an imperative, and be baptized, also an imperative, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off and as many as the Lord our God will call. Peter's call to action was repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus. Both repent and be baptized are in the imperative mood meaning these are commands given to each person. This means that their response to the revelation was a personal matter. To those devout Jews from every ethnic groups who were steeped in the Mosaic law, they presumed to possess the potency to obey the commands. 
But does the power to repent and be baptized come from man? Does mankind have the potency in and of himself to choose to repent and be baptized? Well, verse 39, as I read, answer the question, if you noted. The power to repent and be baptized comes from God. It doesn't come from man. Peter said it in these words, as many as the Lord our God will call. This intimates that God initiates and empowers the calling process. In other words, God calls or God chooses man. Man does not choose God. The Jews understood calling. They were God's elect people, his called out people, his ecclesia. They knew the Abrahamic promise and the redemption from slavery in Egypt, both of which were rooted in divine sovereign choice. Peter explained that the power to repent does not reside with them, but requires divine action in them. It's, it is divine potency, not human potency, that convicts people of sin, empowers transformation in them, and affects forgiveness of their sins. Therefore, those who obey the command to repent and be baptized are those who God has chosen and empowered. These are God's elects, elect. In addition to forgiveness, those whom God chose also to receive divine empowerment through the Holy Spirit, he's enabled them to obey him. This is a major distinguishing mark of the New Testament ecclesia. The Old Testament ecclesia was based on human potency. That was impotent to meet God's standard of righteousness because of their total depravity. Every human being is totally prayed, totally enabled in and of themselves to meet God's righteous standards and satisfy his righteousness and his just requirements. The New Testament ecclesia functions under a different grace, the special grace of divine potency that is efficacious. It works because it is from God. Now, verses 40 and 41. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved. Now, notice this is a passive in a passive voice, and it's also an imperative. That's a very interesting. Uh, when you have the passive voice, that means the action is being done on the subject of the verb. The subject of the verb is are the people. And you say to, to the people, be saved. It's a passive passive imperative, which means they can't do it. It has to be done to them. So again, it's, it's a reflection on the reality that God is the one who is doing the saving. So be saved from this corrupt or, or, or crooked generation. So then those who accepted the message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 were added to them. Luke only recorded some of the words that were spoken on the day of Pentecost. But if, if one believes that the Bible is infallible, then these words are sufficient. What Luke wrote was sufficient for the New Testament Ecclesia. We didn't have to have all of those other words. The phrase be saved implies that these devout Jews from all ethnic groups who were part of the Old Testament Ecclesia were not saved. Yes, these most religious people, perhaps the most religious people in the world were not saved. They were on their way to eternal judgment. So people, Peter was speaking to unsaved people and arguably some of the most religious people on earth, and he calls them a corrupt generation. If anyone could self-save, it had to be the Jews who comprised the Old Testament ecclesia, but they were so corrupt, they lacked the potency to self-save. Therefore, Peter strongly urged them to be saved, which intimated that the best of mankind cannot self-save. The phrase be saved is the passive voice means that the subject of the verb 
the devout Jews of every ethnic group is receiving the action, not doing the action. The imperative mood intimated the urgency of being saved from sin, but the passive voice suggests that they cannot self-save. Their salvation is not a human choice. It is a sovereign act of God. Now, these are obviously very challenging ideas. They challenge us to the core, and there are many professing Christians that don't believe them. But if you believe the words that Peter is speaking here, you're driven to this reality. If this is correct, why did Peter use the imperative mood to state, be saved? If God sovereignly saves, why is it a command that he gives us? This, again, is the mystery of the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Verse 39 clearly states that God calls people to himself. Verse 39 says, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This is consistent with words spoken by Jesus, who stated that the call of God was both sovereign and irresistible. Jesus said of himself in John 6, 37, everyone the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, given the three tenses of salvation, perhaps the best way to understand this is, is that the present and future tense, that is justification, which is the present tense, excuse me, it's the past tense, and glorification, which is the future tense, are the sovereign works of God. The present tense, which is sanctification, then, is, the, is perhaps some synergism between God and man. Paul stated this in these words. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working with you both to will and to do of his good purpose. That's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Another way to understand this is, is the question of assurance. The only one way that one can have assurance of salvation is the fruit of sanctification, as the Apostle John stated. This is how we know we are, we know him, if we keep his commands, 1 John 2, 3. Peter did not fully explain the tenses of salvation, but other scripture, as noted above, brings some clarity. Verse 41 reveals 3,000 people were convicted that, that day that Jesus was both Lord and Christ and in some way expressed faith in Jesus. Presumably not everyone present that day became a follower of Jesus. Those who were saved must have distinguished themselves from those who weren't. Perhaps their humility and repentance were evident. Presumably based on this distinction, they were baptized as a sign of their repentance and became part of the New Testament ecclesia. At the beginning of the day of Pentecost, there were 120 disciples, but by the end of the day, there were over 3,000 that had been added by the sovereign work of God. This began a new phase of the meta narrative, building Jesus' ecclesia by his followers. This phase was marked by the indwelling empowerment of the people of God by the Holy Spirit. Now, verses 42 to 45. So let me read that again to you and make a few comments on this. They, that is now, these are the followers. These are the New Testament ecclesia on this first day of Pentecost. They devoted themselves. That means their adherence. And this is a present active participle, which means present continuous action. They continually devoted themselves would be a way to understand this to the apostles teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled. Again, this is a this is a middle voice, which means they didn't fill themselves with awe. This is the word phobos, which means fear. And many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now, all the believers, now this is the first time the word believers is actually used in the book of Acts. So it shows you that 
it makes a clear connection between believers and this these these early converts to Christianity. They were believers again, present particle participle, which means they were continually believing, and they were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed their proceeds to all as they had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread with from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The highest expression of personal faith is to adhere to the implications of the faith. That is the beliefs of the one that you profess. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus, you need to hold on to what he said we should believe. True faith is expressed then in actions. The actions noted in this text were fourfold. First, there was the didache, which is the teaching, the teaching of the apostles that provided a new understanding of scripture based on the identity of Jesus as the resurrected Lord in Christ. Remember that their scripture was the Old Testament, and now the apostles are giving insight and wisdom and revelation, illumination to the Old Testament at a new level based on what were, they were given by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, the one who was the author of the Old Testament, is now inspiring the apostles to and revealing to the apostles how to understand the Old Testament more profoundly, particularly in light of Jesus. The second element that they adhered to was koinonia, which is the idea of fellowship. The New Testament Ecclesia was a community experience, shared relationship based on a shared faith. It is an experience of equal yoking. Koinonia is derived from koinos, which means which means common, and is related to koinonikos, which means generous. So koinonikos also means to be communicative. So the purpose of sharing was to help the purpose of God and others by communication, by sharing resources, by sharing insight and wisdom, and just by being united together, by the oneness of being in the body of Christ together. The next was breaking the breads, which seems to be intimate more than just a shared meal. The reference here appears to be the sacrament that Jesus initiated in the upper room discourse with his disciples in John 13. The linchpin of Christianity is the resurrection. Disciples of Jesus should frequently participate in this sacrament as a reminder of the historical events that testify to the veracity of the Christian faith. And finally, they, they participated in prayer. To pray to God is to bow down and kiss. That's literally what this word means. It means to approach, bow down, and to kiss, which shows great devotion, submission, humility, submission, and, and teachability to the one that you are praying to. So prayer is an act of humility before God. It's a testimony to the personal compassion. The atmosphere of the New Testament ecclesia is captured in verse 37 by the phrase, everyone was filled with awe. Now, a more literal translation might be every soul, that is everyone who believed the word about Jesus being Lord and Savior, and Lord in Christ rather, were consumed with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord was a common Old Testament phrase that spoke of the humble state of true worshipers before God. The word filled is the imperfect tense that implied a past action that was done toward these worshipers that had ongoing consequences. In other words, ongoing good consequences. The word was used to clarify that this atmosphere began this first day of the birth of the New Testament Ecclesia and continued unabated.
The culture of the first local New Testament ecclesia was not casual toward God as many are today. Rather, it was an atmosphere of serious commitment and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Confirming signs and wonders by the apostles occurred. Some examples of this will be recorded in Acts. For example, the layman who was made, made whole in Acts 3 and Peter's release from prison in Acts 12. And of course, in Acts 16, where Paul and Silas are released from prison as well. There are many examples, but Acts is full of signs and wonders which are confirming of the message and confirming of the identity of Christ and confirming of the apostles and their authority to speak the truth of the word of God. In verses 44 and 45, the members of the New Testament Ecclesia shared temporal resources as a family would. This was a practice embraced by the first New Testament Ecclesia in Jerusalem, but was not widely adopted in other locations, although there were some other examples. Perhaps this suggests that this practice was not normative for the New Testament Ecclesia. We always have to be very careful as we're looking at what is normative and ask ourselves when we read anything, is it prescriptive only? Or is it, is it descriptive only or also prescriptive? If it's descriptive, it's just recording some events. If it's prescriptive, then it is imperative. It's an example, it's a pattern that we should be following. So was this communal living, was it just descriptive or was it also prescriptive? More details of their practices were re revealed in verse 46. They met in the temple, which intimated they did not disconnect from their Jewish heritage. In addition, they also met in their homes. It appears that these were the venues of learning the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. There's no mention of music here. Uh, in our current Christianity, we've made music a really big deal. Uh, it was not apparently that big a deal to the early church. Uh, certainly, they didn't have any problem with, with music. But when you look at what they put their emphasis on, it was not music. It, were, it was other things, specifically apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Luke concluded the chapter in verse 47 by noting the true joy of salvation and reminding his readers that salvation is of the Lord. It is not of human origin. Even the best of humans are never going to be good enough to be acceptable with God, but God has made a way through his son. Now, let me just give you one theological point and then a word of application. Um, let me talk about normative Christian practices for just a moment. As a maxim, apostolic precepts are deduced from scripture and induced from apostolic practices. When I was uh, growing up, my, my spiritual father told me that uh, we, need, he, we need to adopt the principle that apostolic practice was apostolic precept. So uh, I have held that principle for a long time, and I see where we can get that, but we have to be careful with that. It's not, it's a maxim, which means that there can be exceptions to it. So this means that one should be able to discern normative Christian practices, both, both by teaching, by biblical teaching through the word and empirical practices of the original apostles. However, during the time of the formation of the New Testament Ecclesia, there were some unique events. Therefore, not every apostolic practice is necessarily normalized. So let me give an example here. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were added to the ecclesia in verse 41 of chapter 2. So is this to be considered normative? Should one expect that the Lord would do this every time the gospel is proclaimed as Peter did? 
and seeking to be determined normative practice, one should consider the context in which the practice first appeared. For example, the context of the first day of the New Testament Ecclesia was a gathering of devout Jews from all ethnic groups, highly committed to scripture and biblically literate, many of whom had traveled long distances. That showed their commitment, their commitment and their dedication to, to the scripture as they understood it. They were able to understand Peter's argument because Jesus, the argument that Jesus was both the Lord and Christ, the one that the Old Testament ecclesia had been waiting for. However, today, most audiences are biblically illiterate and are not submitted to scripture. Therefore, they would not have understood or received Peter's message. And if they couldn't understand it and wouldn't receive it, they would never be convicted by it. Over the past several hundred years, globally, people are increasingly neither biblically literate nor submitted to scripture. This is called progressive today. And because of the lack of submission to and knowledge of scripture, the common evangelistic crusades of the past 300 years could not use scripture as an efficacious tool of personal conviction. Instead, they resorted to emotionalism. This is a very different context from the one that Peter faced on the day of Pentecost. Consequently, because of the biblical literacy and submission to scripture on the, of the Jews on the day of Pentecost was so great, so much greater than the typical people, the current error, the large numbers of people who reportedly, who re readily repented and were baptized on the day of Pentecost is probably not a normative pattern. In fact, we, we don't see that happening very often today. And I don't know what your experience has been, but my experience in various communities of believers around the world is that it's rare to find many people coming to Christ today. So either there's something very wrong with how we're meeting and the message we're proclaiming today, or this practice was not a normative practice. Though the mass conversions may be normative, some may not be normative, some of the apostolic practices adopted by the New Testament Ecclesia were. So don't forget, there are normative practices. For example, the fourfold practice of the Apostles' Doctrine, Fellowship, Breaking of Bread and Prayer, that seems to be a normative practice, even though maybe the practice of, of having large uh, conversions happening is probably not as normative. So let me give you an application here. I've titled this, The World Against the USA. In December of 2019, the Biennial President's Cup Golf Championship was held at Royal Melbourne Golf Club in Australia. This event matched 12 of the best golfers from the United States against 12 of the best golfers from the rest of the world. One country against the rest of the world. Now, why would this be? Perhaps the answer is the heritage of the United States. The USA is a melting pot of the world consisting of people from virtually all ethnicities, and each ethnicity tends to embrace a particular world. For example, has been Christian, at least Muslim, India, and socialist countries like Russia and China are atheistic. Since the U.S. is predominantly founded by Western Europeans, Christianity has been the dominant worldview. Because of this, Christian values has been generally normative in the U.S. since its formation in the 18th century up until now. Also since the 18th century, the world has been engaged in the Industrial Revolution. The global leaders of this revolution are those that embrace a strong work ethic. One of the values of Christianity, as noted by non-Christian scholars such as Max Weber, in the Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism and other writings. Clearly, the USA is, has embraced a strong Christian work ethic among other 
and many other Christian values. These Christian values en enabled the United States to become a global leader in the Industrial Revolution. By the end of World War II, the United States had become the most powerful and prosperous nation on Earth, largely because of its prowess to develop and employ technology. The world wars of the 20th century provided the context and motivation to unleash this potential, and Christianity provided the value system. Others have observed the importance of Christian values. In the 1980s, China wanted to understand why the USA was the most powerful and prosperous nation on earth. Here's a quote regarding their findings. One of the things we, that is the Chinese, were asked to look into was what accounted for the success in fact, the preeminence of the West, namely the USA, over the world. We studied everything we could find from historical, political, economic, and cultural perspective. At first, we thought it was, it was because they were more, had more powerful guns than we had. Then we thought it was because they had a better political system. Next, we focused on our economic system. But in the past 20 years, we've realized that the heart of your culture, that is the US culture, is your religion, Christianity. This is why the West is so powerful and obviously prosperous. The Christian moral foundation of social and cultural life has made more, po made more possible the emergence of capitalism and then the successful transition to democratic politics. We don't have any doubt about this. That's another one of those certainties. Like we can be certain that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And now the Chinese are telling us we can be certain that the United States is the most powerful and prosperous nation on earth because of Christianity at the root, at the foundation of its heritage. China has no vested interest to draw this conclusion. Their study was an objective third party assessment of the facts. The Chinese were clear that the US is the most powerful and prosperous nation on earth because of its Christian heritage. Notwithstanding the clear conclusion of the Chinese, the citizens of the USA appeared to be clueless about this reality. This intimates that the U.S. citizens are ignorant of the connection between the Christian, their Christian heritage and their prosperity. Christianity was birthed approximately 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost. The existence and prosperity of the USA is tied to this event. The, nearly, the early immigrants came to the USA because of religious persecution. They established this country seeking to be able to live their Christian faith. Four centuries after these, the colonies that is four centuries after the 17th century, the fruit is evident. The USA stands alone as the most powerful and prosperous nation on earth because of its Christian heritage. The Chinese understand this, but increasingly the citizens of the USA do not. And because of this ignorance, the USA is no longer advancing. It is regressing by seeking to disconnect from Christian norms. Sadly, this is being done through the pseudonym progressive which is that which is actually a it is a pseudonym It is an incorrect term. The correct term for what's happening from a Christian worldview is regressive. Over the past 200 years, education, economics, public policy and social norms have been decoupled from Christianity. This is called regressive. This decay will lead to political, societal and economic poverty. If the U.S. continues on this track, it will regress and become a third world nation. The President's Cup golf event is a symbol of, of the historic prowess of the United States as a world leader, economically and politically because of its Christian heritage. But the USA is abdicating its leadership role because it is disconnecting from Christianity. 
Increasingly, events like the President's Cup will be testimonies to the past, not the future. Soon, it will no longer be the world against the U.S. because the U.S. will be no different from the world. The only way to stop this decline is to repent and return to the principles and values of Christianity. The Christianity the original apostles taught and expressed in their practices, such as being devoted to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. This would enable us to lay again a foundation for prosperity that will be a light to the world, revealing the truth of Jesus. To this end, we are called. May we have the grace to repent and to return to a Christian heritage.